great sadness that we mourn the loss of Ray Dieter, owner of the DBA bars and co-host of Beer Sessions Radio. Ray made this studio brighter every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with his larger-than-life personality, charm, wit, charisma, and expertise. We hope the archives of Ray on our station will serve as some kind of window into the life of a man who meant so much to those he knew and those he didn't know. And on behalf of everybody here at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you, Ray. Um, and they've been doing that for many, many years. And how do they get that, that barrel of beer? Um, did you ever hear of a place called Beer Mountain? Where's I have that? not, actually. Beer Mountain is a place that I climb every once in a while to find barrels of beer um, for my customers. I go up there. I wear big, heavy boots. I carry a sled with me because there's snow and ice. And, uh, <laughs> and I go to the top of the mountain, and I bring back barrels and bottles of beer for the people at my bars. And that's, that's where I got it from, Beer Mountain. You're awesome, Ray. It's better for growing things. There's just more rain and more, more regular temperatures, not as harsh a winter. Sure. So it just became more economically viable to grow it there. Can I just make a statement? I want to apologize to everybody that asked me why hops weren't grown in New York State. Because I've told everybody there's a hop light. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. So why did you open a bar in New Orleans? Well, <laughs> everybody asked that question. The basic reason I opened a bar in New Orleans, um, down there, um, the, a, a bit, well, obviously it's a drinking town. There's a lot of drinking town. It's also a culinary town. They have some of the best restaurants in the country down there. And uh, people told us we were crazy, bringing a good beer, good whiskey, good drinking concept down to New Orleans because all the people wanted was, you know, huge ass buds. And that's all well and fine, and, and there's a lot of fun to be had on Bourbon Street, but there's a lot of shit going on down there away from Bourbon Street. And uh, we opened up DBA in 2000, and uh, we had a, a slow beginning because we had a, a pretty good list, and people were like kind of intimidated. But once the restaurant people, the, the, the chefs, the, the service people in the restaurant industry kind of got wind that we were down there, and we had a great beer selection, we... We got filled up pretty fast. I mean, it worked out real well. And we opened our second place called Mimi's down there. And another aspect about it is down there, you know, a bar owner is a respected member of the community. We, we pay our taxes, we, we employ people, and we're part of the whole trade industry down there, the whole um, tourist industry. In New York City, we're not treated quite the same. And you know that as well as I speak. We're kind of treated as... Uh, we're not a respected member of the business community as bar owners, necessarily. So you like New Orleans? I love New Orleans. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Ray Dieter, a.k.a. Bootsy Collins, was just on the air. Ray, what was it like in the old days? Did you have a band or something? Bootsy Collins, Ray Dieter, DBA. I, I, I play guitar a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was kind of boring. The beer business is a lot more fun, Jimmy. You're just too cool, man. I love you, man. <laughs> Ray, tell us the Tom Peters story. I know you've known him for years. You know, you know, I have known him for years, and all the stories that I have about Tom, I cannot tell you on the radio. How about a general <laughs> beer theme story, like okay, the first you. time you met him? How about that? Okay. The first time I met Tom, he was running a bar in Philadelphia called... Um, Copa 2. Copa 2. Copa 2, right. And uh, he was... I went down there. DBA was... A brand new bar We went down there And uh, he was One of the most generous Wonderful guys He's like oh, DBA I love you guys Like How did he hear about us I have no idea But he knew who we were And he treated us like kings And uh, Free food Free drinks 
so generous. And then I found out that he didn't own the place. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, if anyone's offering a course like that, it's a scam. It's, it's, <laughs> absolutely. I took a course at NYU about opening a bar, and it was just a fallacy. It was just ridiculous. They, they have no idea. Um, they have. It's, it's all about math, too. And the math they talk about is really fun, but it's really not pertinent to what you do on a day-to-day living. Um, yeah, we need beer. Can somebody right. open some beer? All right, up? I'm all over this. Give me a minute. Give me a My bottle. My glass is empty. <laughs> this is the first show. We haven't been drinking beer nonstop. Right. Hey, Ray, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, my New Year's was fine. Uh, I made a few bad choices, but you're supposed to. Um, that's just what it is. New Year's is about making bad decisions. Um, and I did that. But it, all in all, okay. I, I lived through it. Like I say, we're the only brewery in the world. We have wooden oak casks. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. When are we going to get some keys? Well, well, I mean, that's, I mean, that, that's that's the reason. I mean, these these casks, we sell them. We sell them in England. You can't ship these things across the Atlantic Ocean. How about if I we mean, provide the casks? <laughs> even if we provi- we we do provide. The when casks. I say we, I mean by America. Well, I can, um, and by America, I mean Union. <laughs> <laughs> union Car- beer. Cask cask beer done the traditional way, as we do it, has a shelf life of probably about a week after it. Um, after it's brewed Yeah but we after have some casks Coming over here I know the Shelton Brothers Bring some casks And I know that The United Nether Importer Brings yeah, some that, casks I mean that's fantastic and They're, all, they're well, fine I'm really glad that you Appreciate You know that's That's great for you That you no have pressure. English cask beer <laughs> But I mean that's I mean to be To be brutally honest The way that we do things At Sam Smith Is that we are very very traditional and, and mm. that's that's what our what, what we believe our success is based on is sticking to our sticking to what well, we I mean, do but best if IPA was made to be sent to India and that's before airplanes and big steamships I mean if you really want to be traditional you can like you know we can get a donkey cart to come around south of Africa or whatever <laughs> on a tramp steamer and bring it over but I think I think it's time for Samuel yeah. Adam Samuel well, sorry Samuel Smith <laughs> to be available in cask occasionally for special events in, in New York Not, yeah, a, lot of the, a lot of the beers in England I mean most of the breweries the old old school English ale breweries would make a barley wine but it wasn't they weren't proud of them it was something that they kept under the shelf and it was something that like the old guy with yeah. a really greasy red woolly cap in the corner yeah. would get a little glass and it was like he would get a little bottle of it it was about six ounces and he poured into his ale yeah. because no, nobody would sit there and pound right. barley wine like we do here in America right. yeah. and that barley wine that he was pouring into his ale it was fortification ale, yeah. right. his ale yeah. was about three and a half percent it was a yeah. session beer and the barley wine back in the day was probably about six percent six and a half percent right right and and he didn't want to be seen drinking that because only old drunks drank barley wine. But that's a whole old, old profile. Little nip. Yeah. Yeah. And now so he would do he would he would dip that little glass into into his into his ale and he would drink that. He'd sip that and quietly have a nice day. <laughs> Can't wait to be old. <laughs> On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com.
This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street. Brunch is being served. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime and bestie friend, Patrick Martins. Best what friend? Best friend forever. Oh, BFF. Um, and I uh, just want to give a quick shout out to the family and friends of Ray Dieter. Wow. A tremendous loss for the network and a tremendous loss for the community. A great guy and somebody who will be no doubt sorely missed and uh, I really think, I mean, us. he elevated the whole network. He's just and, an awesome you know, every dude. host, whether it be, you know, Groundworks or, you know, Taste of the Past, like all boats rise with the high tide. And he really brought a certain bit of a kind of like edgy class and and uh a guy with so much energy yeah. it's hard to imagine that he got snuffed so young and that's all i'm going to say about that um we have a full studio today which is really fun um we don't usually do as many guests at once as we have today so it's a real roundtable discussion it's a salon um, it's a salon that's right um i think we should do a once a month salon patrick i think that's a good idea to do that format every once uh you know every every other week or something anyway we have julie schaffer who is is here from Schaefer. Um, Schaefer, is that right, Julie? Oh, so sorry. Is that right? There's Come no on, e. I've known Julie for a decade. Sorry, S H A E would normally be Schaefer. Excuse me, Julie Schaefer. Julie Schaefer is the founder of Slow Food Atlantic. Atlanta, excuse me. Julie is a former art teacher in the public school system, but in 2000, following, or 1999, I think, following a trip to Italy, she became involved with Slow Food and then subsequently opened a chapter in Atlanta. You now run sort of the southeast regional Slow Food uh, part of the court of the network and you also and this is the thing that really blew my mind is you work for emory university in atlanta as the sustainable food service education coordinator a fantastic post and possibly unique in university life and i just want to say one quick thing about julie she is such an amazing she brings together everybody Black, white, young, old, anything. Like, she well, is a networker. Why. She just has an amazing charisma and she's profoundly good, totally clean, true. and fair, as Slow Food likes to say. And Atlanta's lucky to have her. And Slow Food, and slow is, food really is really lucky, lucky to have her. And so is Emory University. She delivered clearly. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of members to the to the international Absolutely cause. Absolutely fabulous. So really great. Um, our second guest in the studio is Christoph Hill, who is one of the owners of the wonderful restaurant Northern Spy. Um, he is a graduate of Wesleyan with a major in music. You went straight to the New England Culinary Institute. You know, cooks always come, um, cooks or, or people in the food business always come by way of something else. I think that's always true. Um, you worked at Le Clos de la Violette in Aix-en-Provence. I love that city. Nice pronunciation. Before joining uh, San Francisco powerhouse kitchens, including Compton Place and Charles Knob Hill, to create the perfect pizza pie. Christoph earned certification as pizzaiolo in southern Italy, and I know that's tough. And you started the famous restaurant A16 in San Francisco, where you worked with Chris Bear, who is now of Brooklyn Larder, and Nate Appleman, who has been a former guest on this show and who is now at Chipotle. And by the way, A6, opening, um, A16 Polino's. was Carlo's fav- Carlo Petrini's favorite restaurant, Italian restaurant outside of Italy. Well, that's no small. It's uh, a very compliment. cool, yeah. And uh, your restaurant, Northern Spy, opened in 2009 with your partners Nathan Foote and Chris Ronis um, and you guys have made uh, so you're sort of a, a benchmark of responsible uh Purchasing and finding the right stuff, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. And lastly, in the studio, we have the absolutely lovely Annalise Griffin. 
Annalise is the senior editor for Brooklyn-based, a website and email service. Brooklyn-based is the source for promoting Brooklyn businesses and cultural events. They stage events and they promote events. Um, Annalise writes mostly about what she loves, which is food, agriculture, film, books, and television. She is also the collaborative editor of the Fort Greene Clinton Hill edition of The Local. And you're married to the star butcher. <laughs> Tom Milan of the Meat Hook. Who would ever have thought, I was a butcher for five years, who would ever have thought that anyone would ever talk about a butcher as like a media celebrity? But my God, Tom has made it happen. So um, we have another guest who will be coming on later on, but let's Larry jump right Bocal. into from Cannonball Express, who is one of the few companies, Cannonball Express is one of the few companies that does less than load transport for small farmers and businesses. And we're going we're gonna to dig literally more help, deeply. Uh, thousands of small yeah. businesses. I mean, he has an amazing, he's been a guest before, and he has an amazing um, business model and an amazing uh, commitment to sustainable agriculture. He's been good to us. Yeah, and he's been wonderful to us. So, okay, so let's start out. Um, Julie, since you came all the way from Atlanta, let's start with you, darling. First of all, I want to hear what exactly does it mean when you're a sustainable food service education coordinator? Well, Emory has a really ambitious sustainable food goal of sourcing 75% of the food served on our campus, and that's about 75,000 meals per day if you count our hospitals and all the health care. And they brought me on board to educate all the stakeholders from blue-collar kitchen staff to wealthy donors, faculty, staff, students, about our sustainable food initiative, what sustainable food is actually, why it's important, and what Emory's doing about it. Well, how did you how did you get Emory to sign on for this? I mean, because you were an art teacher. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I oh, mean, and you, you have a very famous graduate. Who is that famous graduate who had? Uh, oh yeah, Carol Walker. Carol Walker, Walker, the uh, artist Carol Walker, who. Uh, oh, Carol Walker, of yeah, course. Yeah. yeah, she lives in Brooklyn. Her daughter and... went to school with my kid. Oh really? Okay, yeah, I tried yeah. really hard to buy one of her works of art at a public <laughs> school auction, but I could, I could I was outbid by somebody well, a lot I w- richer I, than I. Yeah, I would think so. I, I think you'd have to have a pretty Pretty deep pocketbook yeah. to buy a She's Carol a terrific piece. artist, though. Yeah, she's terrific, and she was terrific in high school, and she gets more terrific with time. Yeah. So, so tell us how you go from an arts mm-hmm. teacher to the head of the sustainability well, movement at Emory. Yeah, it was really my work with Slow Food that led me to the position at Emory. I um, heard about a farmer liaison job at Emory, and I thought, oh, I had just retired from teaching, which you now makes me really old, right? And um, You look a lot younger than I do. Now, well, thank you. You're very sweet. But I'm <laughs> quite a bit older than you are. I don't believe it. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, I heard about this farmer liaison job, and I thought, wow, that sounds really great. Emory is hiring somebody to go out and establish relationships with farmers all over the state and all over the region. And I think I could do that with my slow food uh, networking background and, you know, just all the people I know. And I applied for the job and uh, did not get it. I lost it to a young farmer with a, a master's in farming. Wah, wah. But, you know, anyway, they said, but we have you in mind. Uh, mm. <laughs> we have you in mind for this other job. And if we find the funding for it, we'll call you and let you know. And I thought, mm. anyway, they did. And uh, about a year later, and um, so 
that was three years ago. I've been there for three years. I, yeah, I think my position is unique, and I think I'm the only one like me what in the country. What does it mean yeah, exactly? Yeah, day to day, Let's tell give, us. You know, give yeah, us an idea of how you make this work. And and it costs more, right? So talk about that as well. What now, costs more to buy sustainable foods? So yeah. I mean, tell us about nitty gritty. Yeah, how did you get this? How did you get the university to really? buy into the program it's like nice to have the farmer on the you know for the shareholders or whoever the board it's nice to have the farmer there saying oh yes we're doing the right thing but the the reality is is that it costs a lot more for a food service program in a university to do what emory is doing so yep. how did you make them willing to I, put that I budget money up i did not make that happen that happened before i came on board cool and it was really um a top-down effort with a bunch of really progressive <clears throat> um faculty and a very progressive president who put the vision in place and then they hired me to teach about it so i didn't um do anything to convince them they were do you actually teach a course in sustainable i do not i'm not faculty no so you're Um, teaching actually the people who are making the food i teach through special events Mm -hmm. we have a weekly farmer's market and we have we're just launching a center for food education called foodie u which also is very um unique and innovative i think Maybe Harvard has a food literacy project, but we're going to have an actual center for food literacy and food education this fall, and I'm very excited about that. And we do everything from film screenings, panel discussions, hands-on cooking demonstrations, butchery, um, cheese making. Wow. And, you know, food is pretty interdisciplinary. So, you know, we tie in theology public health, medicine, nutrition, history, But let me arts, ask, day to day what the students eat. Okay. Does it, has it changed? Like day in, day out, pizzas, you know, uh, roast beef sandwiches, veggie plates, like, is, has that changed yet? Yeah, think, so are you moving yeah. away from chicken McNuggets and into more, you know, I don't know. Heritage turkeys. <laughs> well, yes, for heritage turkeys. Well, you're right. <laughs> but we have a lot of different palates to please mm-hmm. and a lot of different food traditions at Emory. So, um, and it is a business, food service. So well, it should be. Let me interrupt you for just a second. It should be mentioned that it is Sodexo that you work with, which is a giant. They are our Yeah, they are the food. And I think it's very important to mention that Sodexo has been part of the program to initiate these these policies in terms of where they source their food and how that I just I just wanted to yep. put that in there because it's not just that Emory is such a great job but they but that there is a there is a corporate entity behind this that has a you know has some responsibility towards how they source food. Correct. There are food service contractor at Emory University and at many of the universities in our area and um, if they want to keep our business they um, they make it work. And they're doing a good job. They're a cooperative partner, and um, the produce manager, I mean the um, procurement manager, works pretty closely with our office and tracking and sourcing. And, um, yeah, it's it's a really great team effort to... So, Julie, what you do is you help Sodexo find the people in your area that can provide these products at a competitive price. So that Sodexo can purchase from them and support that economy. We do, and they do that as well. Very interesting. So there's a whole new kind of trend, and Annalise, I want to ask you about this trend too. So there's a a trend that goes from 
you know, people just, you know, eating regular food and all of a sudden then wanting to become more concerned with sustainability. So as someone who follows the, has the finger on the pulse so strongly on Brooklyn and New York and trends and traditions and events, have you noticed a kind of steering the ship towards this particular direction or... I mean, what? how have you seen it? How long have you been doing Brooklyn Base? Maybe tell us a little bit about it. And what have you noticed happen over the years? Um, I've been doing Brooklyn Based for, it's three years now, a little more than three years. And before that, I mean, I, I've worked, I've, I've always divided my time between the food world and the journalism world, which is a, a strange place to be sometimes um, because you're not supposed to journalistic ethics say you're not supposed to write about your friends, you're not supposed to write about your husband, which I do all the time. Um, so I, you know, I've sort of created a space for myself at Brooklyn Base to write about the things that I, that I love and that I am, you know, honestly sort of an advocate for, but I, I try to do it with, uh, you know, full transparency so that people know where I'm coming from so they can make their judgment about what I'm writing. Um, before that, I actually worked in, in cheese and in wine as well as, as freelance writing on the side and working for the Daily News. Um, so I've been in the, in the food world for a long time, um, and it has changed a lot. I mean, when I was working at Murray's seven years ago... With we, Tom. With Tom. And Anne. And with Anne Saxelby, yes. Um, you know, your fiancé. And a dear friend of mine. Um, I also suffer from lack of journalistic integrity. Yeah, it's I'm tough. I mean, if you're writing about, again. especially in Brooklyn, it's like you get to know people and then you like them and then you're friends with them. It's not like you're not going to be friends because you're yeah. supposed to do a job. And the New York Times and all those big companies do that anyway. They just maybe don't admit it. Yes, that's right. They pretend that they're not doing it. They're doing they're it. Doing it. As someone totally. with an official affiliation with the Times, I'm not going to comment on that, but <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's harder than um, you know writing down the ethics codes on a piece of paper makes it seem. As we like to say at HRN, incest is best. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I thought Patrick. this was a family show. Oh, I guess it is then. <laughs> News of the world, you're not. In that only my family, family is... Family gets, baby. Only my family is listening. <laughs> that's not that's true, the, and you no, know that. Kidding. But anyhow, when we were at Murray seven years ago, we had a tiny section of, you know, American cheeses, let alone cheeses from the Northeast. And now Anne has a whole business running, you know, primarily cheeses from the Northeast. And every time I go into her shop now, I see, you know, five or six or ten different things that I've never even heard before. Um, And I think also in in the restaurant realm and in, you know, the grocery realm... There was a, a period a couple of years ago where it seemed like things that were local, things that were sustainable, were also things that were precious and expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think we're moving away from that as much as possible. I mean, like your work at Emory with a, a, a big corporation trying to make that work and trying to find the price points that make that work. I think that beyond trying to create the most exquisite plate of food, which you know, still, of course, we appreciate and love, and, and you know, many of us eat out a lot to get that but on a day-to-day basis I think there are more options all the time and I think you know like the Meat Hook and Roberta's here has a, a stand in the Rockaways called Rippers and they do burgers and dogs a burger there costs five bucks and it's, it's not, delicious and I it's grass-fed it and grass-finished and it's local it's all from New York State their, their hot dogs are all made upstate and they're all all of their meat is 
local and it's all raised sustainably and it's all by small farmers and it's not that much more expensive than getting a Sabrett's hot dog at mm-hmm. a dirty water absolutely. dog absolutely I mean and so it's possible and people that I mean once that has that I think that recently that has become the the goal and you know, once you have all these smart energetic talented people working toward that goal you know, it becomes possible. Well, Christoph, let's move on to you because Northern Spy was one of the first restaurants in 2009 that really made a point of, you know, saying this is we're buying locally. This is what we're about. We do seasonal foods. How have you seen things change since you started the restaurant in terms of your ability to um, get those competitive price points and work with farmers who are moving more product and thus can lower their price a little bit? How's the distribution going? Like all of the things that make a restaurant work. I think what we discovered is that it's um, it's more of a logistical issue than a price issue. Very interesting. Um, for instance, we buy all of our almost all of our fish, all of our fillet fish, all of our whole you know fin fish from Blue Moon Fish and PDD Seafood at the at the Green Market. We're one of the their very few, if not only, wholesale accounts. And wholesale for us means only a little bit less uh, than retail mm-hmm. than they sell the market. But it's still less than we would pay for the equivalent fish from our fish purveyor. Um, wow. So it's more of a logistical issue in that we need to uh, have a guy who can go over there to the market and pick it up on our bike and bring it back. So that happens three days a week. So, but once you figure it out, you realize, well, it, you know, it kind of becomes you know fun and, and everybody likes it because the quality is is spectacular. Um, and similarly with uh, with produce. Um, you know, California produce from Manhattan f- Fruit Exchange is not that cheap, so you're not getting s- such an advantage by buying it. Except that you know, in March, there's nothing else from the East Coast, and um, and it's a lot easier to order because you just get on the phone at 11 p.m. one night, and right. the next morning it's there. Yeah. So it really has to do with more logistics. So the the commitment that people have to make is to having somebody committed to uh, making the logistics work so we have in fact somebody on staff who's we're not really big enough to really call him you know a forager but uh, we have a guy who really helps the kitchen get stuff from the market now um, look for places that are providing us with uh, where we could get something that we used to be getting elsewhere Um, we just you know found out we could get buttermilk from Lancaster County for cheaper than we're paying than we were paying from you know Dairyland you know, and it's just, it's, you know, it's just like something you just, you overlook for, you know, six months. You're like, oh, I'm just going to keep on ordering, you know, from these guys because I, you know, I don't have time to look at the produce list, the product list. And then you look at the product, it's like, oh, holy cow, it's, you know, it's there. It's cheaper. So, again, it's like, it's more of a time and commitment thing than a price thing. Um, have so you found it hard uh, being from Northern California? I mean, having come from Northern California at age 16? Yes. And to come to a place like New York and be like, wow, things are a little harder here. They are. It's a lot harder. Um, you have to really swallow a lot of uh, of pride and, uh, and you know, really squash a little bit the, the, the overwrought ambitions. I mean, you know, Marquita Farms provided a 16 with with produce year round i mean you know in february you'd be getting this exquisite escarole and you'd have artichokes and you have this everything i mean year round there's always something here there's this long dark period where you know if you're not buying something from florida or california it's gonna it's you know it's gonna be turnips and potatoes for everybody and we're not so bold that we want to say to people that's what they get to eat for six yeah, months because we're so politically committed yeah so it's really you know i will say 16 i very much liked it i don't know why i believed in nate but i invited him to one of our farm trips and he came and when he met all the farmers he was like 
oh, I, I, I really am impressed by these Berkshire farms in the Midwest. And so he ended up sourcing. And to this day, A16 still buys from us because of that decision that he made. Yeah. And I kind of admired him choosing the taste, the quality, the product, the, the relationship, you know, versus strictly the mileage. Right. But, um, you know, oftentimes it is just as good locally and whatnot. But um, anyway, I just kind of admired him doing it for the gastronomic reasons well, we'll as well. Into- there are, I mean, that's the thing, though, is it's, it's like it's not a zero-sum game and it's not it's not black and white i mean yeah. there's like any small improvement is an improvement so even if it's a smaller farmer from the midwest and the supply chain is is more transparent then it's still better than you know some alternatives so absolutely well we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and kind of bring all of this various uh, kind of knowledge uh, this kind of think tank opportunity and, and talk about some issues like elitism and uh, how the hell do you get the word out uh, you know, how do we prove that we're better than Purdue and and affordable and McDonald's and all that and affordable? So we will come back after this short break. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. We're back. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. Oh my God. Ever professional here. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiever, with my co-host, Patrick Martins. We're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street. Tiki Party. What is it called? Tiki Disco. Tiki Disco. Sorry. I know you were alive during the 70s. You were in your 70s during the 70s. I mean, really. I mean, I was a disco girl. But uh, Tiki Disco is going to be happening from about 2 o'clock on here. Um, I urge people to come on down for that. It's a really good time. It's at 261 Moore Street. In the studio with us today, we have Julie Schaefer from uh, Slow Food Atlanta. Annalise Griffin, who is the the mastermind behind Brooklyn Based, a a fantastic website and and email service. And um, Christoph Hill, who is one of the owners of Northern Spy and Northern Spy Food Company. So um, we were just talking about um, elitism, kind of during the break. Yeah, Yeah. like everybody says. I mean, when we talk about, and this is, it's been interesting in the evolution of this program over the last two years. We've seen a real difference in the way, uh, you know, local agriculture has penetrated into the consumer consciousness. And so the elitist argument remains something that people stick at when they say, well, I don't want to spend, you know, $15.99 for a grass-fed steak or I don't want. Meanwhile, I used to work as a butcher. I know that we we charged for commodity $15.99. So, I mean... 
you know, I really, I wonder, I feel like the sustainable food movement has been mired in this economic um, misnomer that it's not affordable. And I think it's a self-imposed one. It's the very yeah. own people that believe in it Absolutely. that are flagellating themselves And it really, I mean, nothing. as Julie has shown with her work with Emory University in being able to work with a major food uh, catering company that services institutions around the world, that it's possible So can you that. each speak to how you deal with the elitist issue in, you know, at Emory University with your website? And at a popular New York City restaurant. So we'll start with you, Julie. Well, I think it comes down to some creative budgeting. Um, you know, when you pay four times as much for a heritage breed turkeys at the, uh, the Thanksgiving meal as you 3. would. 3.9, Julie. Okay. Um, <laughs> you have to get creative on with the rest of your sourcing. I think you have to... Um, eat better quality and less of it especially with proteins and um eh, i won't say robbing peter to pay paul but that's it's sort of it you have to get creative and um and you find a balance and you find a balance and uh yeah so, so how do you deal with that i mean the the stories you cover and and issues you deal with I mean, yeah, there are definitely stories and events that we we cover, we promote that people will email us and say, you know, that's too expensive. That's, that's something that's for someone who's in a, a bracket above me. But I, I really see it as a two-part sort of problem, the, the elitism and the access to sustainable local food. The first part, I mean, I think it goes to, to what you're saying, Julie, is the, like, it's choices. If For middle class and upper middle class people, it's about choices. Do you tithe to your church? Do you donate to a charity? Do you buy expensive shoes? Do you have cable? Do you have the newest iPhone? Do you buy local and organic? That it's is a choice. Brilliant. Absolutely. That's what we were saying. Yes, we, we talk about that all the time. It's like people will, even low income people will spend $150 on a pair of sneakers, but they won't buy a lobster. Yeah, exactly. And it's I mean, okay to buy the lobster. If some kid wants to be a chef growing up, he can spend or she can spend that money off the lobster. That's no less ridiculous than the shoes. Yeah, and we have to recognize that there's a huge portion of the people, certainly my audience has choices. They're choosing, you know, what band to go see or what movie to go see or what event to be. And a lot of them are young and, and don't make a ton of money, but they still are people who have choices. The other half of that equation is people who really, really in our society, in our food world, do not have choices, who are on EBT or food stamps, who don't, not only can they not afford to buy local, organic, grass-fed meat, you know, they can't afford to buy the grocery store, the key foods version of that. They can't afford to buy Purdue chicken and Andy Box broccoli. I mean, that and and that comes down to a whole complicated system of subsidies. And I mean, that's that's something that is a little bit beyond my my purview at Brooklyn base. But it's something I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in terms of uh, just food justice and, and you know social justice in our world. And a, as someone who's been in agriculture and is interested in agriculture. Well, I always maintain the sustainable food movement is very much at its beginning phase and shouldn't at this point have to answer those types of questions yet. I mean, those farmers are often the very ones using those stamps, you know, that we're trying to help. You know, I mean, they're struggling themselves. So I 
I sometimes also think it's too tall an order to ask, you know, the farms that uh, Meat Hook uh, supports to then also help a public school. You know, like, come on, not yet. Maybe in 20, 30 years, we're like the beginning of the women's suffrage movement, the beginning of the civil rights movement, the beginning of the environmental movement. Give it some time, it'll get there. But right now, I mean, slow food just came around 10, 12 years ago in this country. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it takes time. So. But the, the question is really, to my mind, and I'm going to jump a little ahead in this, is that, you know, with all of the young people who are going into farming, which people can listen to on this network, you know, the Farm Report and Greenhorn Farmers, I mean, with all the young people who are getting into farming and farming locally, like, do you guys think, you know, especially you, Christoph, who sources for a restaurant, um, do you think that... They there will come a point where those small entities are going to become enough of a force to actually give Big Ag a run for its money and be able to um, tip that price point, you know, up into a place where farmers still get paid the right amount, but um, but are actually able to provide a much better quality product. I would say uh, a hopeful yes, <laughs> yeah, but right. there's a caveat to that, which is it really entirely has to do with the consumer, what the consumer is willing to do. Um, uh, I recently did a, a lot of research on the meat situation in New York State, and from my conversations with people like Chris Harmon at uh, Cade, it really comes down to uh, what the willing, what the consumer is willing to pay uh, mm-hmm. issue. So, for instance, at Northern Spy, our price point is not really dictated again by the quality of the product we're sourcing. We have a slightly higher food cost than I would like to if I was, you know, buying everything from Cisco, but actually our menu prices would probably be similar. I mean, we would be we are in a certain niche of restaurants and that's sort of the price. And and that's largely dictated mostly by issues like labor, rent, utilities, etc. It has it has mar- only marginally it's only marginally associated with the price of the of the product to begin with. Um, so so you know, we our prices um, relate to sort of the restaurant demographic that we're in and um, our in terms of elitism and access we're attracting a certain audience that is exposed to a certain sort of cultural, you know, segment, you know, um, and so we just do that, you know, that's, that's, I mean, it's a business. We like to do it. We have fun doing it. For me, it's, it's about being a springboard for other things that happen. Um, and the elitism issue, I would say this, Farming, you know, sustainably and small farming is a fundamentally small C conservative movement. It's not a liberal movement. I mean, the the urge to provide, you know, uh, a good standard of living for a small family living in the country on a farm, working with one's hands, you know, it's like this is all like Thomas Jefferson, small America, small C conservative stuff. It is not a hippie, you know, liberal movement, which is. I think what, as you were saying, sort of is a self-imposed sort of image as well as a media-imposed image. But if you read what's going on with a lot of the cutting-edge stuff in in meat farmers, Midwestern uh, meat lockers developing, and it's a conservative movement in the best possible Mm -hmm. way. It's about sort of conserving our values, conserving our land, conserving, um, you know, sort of human capital. Heritage, and I love it. It's also, we always speak of trickle-down. Oh, well, if the chefs like you, Christoph, or Tom, you know, bring these uh, ideas to 
the public, then it'll trickle down, you know, which is a very conservative kind of Republican. Well, the U.S. published a report in March of this year saying that it was a French guy who headed up this, um, you know, this task force that uh, on agriculture around the world. And his conclusion was that big ag is really not sustainable in the long term and that really we must be looking towards smaller agricultural entities to do exactly what you talked about, which is to preserve the land, to provide a better quality, and to, you know, ultimately sort of support rural communities, mm-hmm. which has been very much fallen right. by so, the wayside so with the model we've had for the last. 50 the most years. like the most despicable thing is that there is this association, which is like the the sort of the on the on message, you know, from from you know the people like like right wing nut jobs who sort of who who depict the uh, sustainable food movement as being a a nanny state sort of food police, you know, Mary Nestle, tree hugging, is that, is that somehow that message gets picked up by people as being a truism. And then anything that is, as we're, as we're describing sort of small C conservative helping out the common person, you know, in a true way, gets picked up and sort of portrayed as that, you know, it is in my interest to be able to eat a McDonald's. It is not in mm-hmm. your interest to be able to eat a McDonald's. It's like, it's fundamentally hurting you in every way that you don't, like, in so many ways that you don't realize, but somehow that message is stronger at present than our message. Well, that's a great, I mean, before we finish the segment, we have like five minutes left. Maybe each of you could speak to how to get that message out. Because Heritage Foods is always like, how come we only have a thousand Twitter followers? And then we look at someone, you know, uh, like... Purdue that has a billion or something Twitter followers or Facebook followers. How does Northern Spy, how does Brooklyn-based, how does Emory, even within Emory, but also nationally, how do you guys get the message out? So we'll stay with you and come this way. How do you uh, get people to fill All the I seats? do, I mean, I think my only, my only with Northern Spy, I mean, I do other things in my life that reflect sort of personal study and, and development, but with Northern Spy, I mean, my goal is to just run a, a sustainable business, you know, pay my employees, um, treat them kindly, have a good business that's respected in the community, and everything else follows from that. It's just you do what you can with that business, you hope to prove that it's a, it's a viable model, and that you inspire other people to follow, you know, other people to to sell things to you, other people to, to come by from you, and other b- people to start similar businesses. So what do you do? Just word of mouth? You just operate... Well, I mean, literally, it's just really just about operating well. Setting an example. Setting an example, just operating well. I mean, yet we're active Do you do on- anything unusual with how you treat your employees? Or, I mean, I know the food you source, but I mean, is there something points that you make within your business uh I, I just try to treat them as you know as best as i can as as you know as uh as peers you know as colleagues um you know i treat you know we don't like pay some sort of like ridiculous wage i mean we pay sort of industry standard wages but we try and treat people nicely if they have problems like we you know we if they need money we advance some money you know we, we you know we do everything that we can within the sort of the norm of what are you know what are you know, economics will allow. Do the people who I'm just going to keep a state, but I, I want Annalise to answer this too because this is sort of your stock and trade. But do you do a big social media presence? Do you create um, a following with your with the consumers that come in and dine at your restaurant? Do you have like a regular sort of email yes, uh, res- yeah, association yeah. with them? And and so yeah. they're they're already committed to the concept, or they wouldn't yes. be eating at your restaurant. Yeah, we, uh, we but have, you're able to yeah. further that message. We're pretty uh, active on that. Twitter. We're, yeah. We have a, we have a monthly e- uh, newsletter. Right. Um, 
you know, we were on Facebook and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so we do all that, yes. And Annalise, you are in the heart of the whole social media yeah. thing. What with a website and a weekly email or bi-weekly email that you send out to promote events and, and businesses. Um, tell us a little bit how that got started and, and how you've seen it evolve over the last few years. I mean, three years ago, Twitter didn't exist, so let's let's start with that, right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of getting the message out, I mean, I, I own a media company, so I, yeah. I am the message. Um, but, I mean, yeah, we use social media a lot. We use we have 10,000 followers on Twitter. Um, wow. Jump it, Jiminy, girl. Yeah, and... We'll take a lesson from you after this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes a lot of work. You know, there's yeah. there's two of us who own this company, and, uh, and we have a third uh, sort of non-active partner. Um, but, yeah, it takes it takes a lot of work. But, uh, I mean, I, I think for us... People always want to hear the more complicated story. They want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the press release. Or, you know, maybe even if they don't want to hear it, like, as a journalist, that's what I'm always trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And it's the... I think often the, the food movement suffers from a lack of sense of humor. And we try not to... You know, so we, did the communists. <laughs> that's why that failed. Indeed. You know, we we try not to write stories that are like yeah, look if what you to them, <laughs> if you eat at McDonald's you're going to hell. You know, right. it's like Tom and I eat at McDonald's when we take road trips yeah. occasionally. You know, and and sure. and he couches it as like this is research. I'm going to see how their burger. And I'm huh. like, no, you just want the burger. Yeah, but um, yeah, Anne gets very Anne will never eat, but um, she's seen me pull into many a drive-through. <laughs> sure, I mean, I, it to, me, to me, for it's a like. Reason. If if their business model was based on my six dollars a year I spend there, then they would fail. Um, it's not about be. I think this sort of purism and complete lack of sense of humor about anything other than a carrot that was grown two miles away in organic Thank soil you, is is a real problem. And it's very off putting to a lot of people. So you know we try to. Um, always tell things from with, with interesting characters with, with who are, are they're not just this like. 25 year old pigtailed like angelic farmer you know we try to tell stories that are about things that are a little thornier that are about the libertarian farmer who is not pro-gay marriage but wants to yeah everyone i work with is conservative jack can we play that uh i know this is last minute for jack but the the uh, portlandia skit i mean i for those who still haven't heard it (laughs) i think it's very funny i also know that's asking a lot for our producer to just have to play that but it does to a t fred armison who i love yeah i lived in portland for seven years and that is portland to a t oh man does your chicken (laughs) right here oh you got a cute up jack when i was a kid like you got great eyes it's like i'm just a guy you're my guy i am your guy Hey guys, hello. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. The hazelnuts, these are local. How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm-hmm. Give me just a second. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Okay. She's nice. Well, you're doing the right thing. I'm too apologetic. 
You are. I, I drove way too slow here today, didn't I? Yeah. I am so weird with that gas pedal. I think just moves the whole vehicle forward now. All right, so here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying you, tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Various <laughs> papers, okay? He, he looks like a happy little yeah. guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, palling around. I don't know that I can speak to that level of uh, intimate knowledge about him. Um, they do a lot to make sure that their chickens uh, uh, are very happy. When you say they, I mean, who are these people raising Colin? It's a farm that's located about uh, 30 miles south of Portland. And you have a good relationship with this farm? We I do. Is that some guy on a yacht who lives in Miami? Oh, who's goodness, just no. saying that he's organic? It's just, it tears at the core of my being the idea of someone just cashing in on a trend like organic. No, I know the type, no. Yeah. Um, tell you what, we're gonna go check it out if you don't mind, just yeah. if you could hold our seats. Oh, now, now? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be right back. We'll just wanna make sure it's just, you know, okay. Thank you so much, Dana. Sure, sure. That is a classic, classic piece of send-up on exactly what Annalise was talking about, which is you know, people just get way too religious about this stuff. Julie, what were you going to say? Oh, just that, that people think of it as a black and white issue. And just like with national politics, there's a huge polarization within the local sustainable food movement. And and I think people forget their shades of gray. You know, there are little things you can do to reduce your impact on the environment and make a difference. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to be a purist or... A total do nothing. I mean, there there are many um, steps in. Yeah, the there are plenty of strategies where yeah. you can embrace straddle both sides of uh, you know commodity and and local. And Alice right. is a Alice Waters is a good friend of mine. And then one time I remember she was like, "Oh, I'm signing a pact with Italy." You know, and I was like, "Oh, oh wow, people? yeah, they're going 100 percent uh, organic, huh?" She's like, "100 percent. They're going one percent." In the next three years, and that's enough for me. And I was like, yeah. "Wow!" Even in Alice Waters, who everyone thinks it's like all or nothing, she understands too that change happens over time. And you know, you can't be perfect right at the beginning. Also, especially if you're a restaurant. I mean, if you were 100 percent, 100 percent of the time, that'd be impossible. I've done the math. We're 60 40. Yeah, over 60, the year, which really? I'm, I'm quite proud of. That's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, that's 60, unbelievable. Yeah. So um, maybe let's take um, a break, and we're going to come back uh, and talk about distribution, logistics. We're going to have a real powerhouse on the national stage. Larry Boke will come on as a call-in. So, but we'll get everyone's perspective. We'll bring Larry on for a kind of conversation and uh, stay talk tuned. About how to make it happen? We'll be right back.
so we're back on the main course. We're broadcasting out of Roberta's. We have uh, our three amazing guests, Christoph from Northern Spy, Annalise from Brooklyn Based, and Julie from Emory University. So for this uh, kind of final segment, we're going to have Larry Bokel from Cannonball Express come on in a few minutes, but we're going to talk about logistics, how to make it happen. So Julie... I know uh, everyone actually had something to say about this on break. Julie, we'll start with you. Talk about logistics. Okay. Well, I feel like um, it's different everywhere, these sourcing issues and roadblocks. And in Georgia, while we're an agricultural state, we ship, because of the convoluted distribution system, 90% 90 of our agriculture outside the state. And some of it ends back in our state, but very little. And so, well, you know, they're getting our Georgia peaches in California. We're getting California and Texas peaches in Georgia. And, you know, try to find a Georgia peach in the peach season. It's ridiculous. So it's, it's that in itself is a real problem. The distribution system is such that it makes the whole thing, it adds a couple of layers of complication into the... Um, you know, into the problem. Into and the whole equation. Well, it adds economic, it adds a couple of layers of economic, uh, you know, increase, of financial increase into the price sure, points. Sure, and not to mention the impact to the environment with the transportation sure. costs. And didn't, Julie, you once have to use Heritage Foods in New York City just to be able to get a cow from a local farm into yes, Emory University? Yes, yes, because of shows uh, the absurdity. processing issues and, yeah, Insurance. yeah, yeah. Yep, insurance, that's true. And so has that been a big challenge to you at Emory University? That has been a challenge. and To figure um, that out? Absolutely. And continues to be a challenge. And we're basically having, having to recreate a local food system where there hasn't been one in the past 40 years. So, yeah, it's an ongoing challenge. It's really broken down locally. So, Annalise, yes. I know you know you encounter logistics with everything. So tell us about your thoughts. Um. You know, I actually did a series of articles for the Diner Journal, which is affiliated with uh, Diner and uh, Marlowe and Sons in South Williamsburg, uh, about focusing in on uh, the cellars at Jasper Hill, which is a huge infrastructure project that these brothers, Andy and Matteo Keeler, are doing in northern Vermont, which is actually where I grew up. And so they started out as a cheese farm, Jasper Hill Cheese. And, but they had, um, you know, sort of bigger sites set on renewing the economic engine of this this very depressed region of northern Vermont and Northeast Kingdom. Northeast right? Kingdom, yeah, which I mean, is where my family's lived for like many generations, and I'm totally familiar with the, the economic depression there and. And it's also a big farm and dairy economy. And so what Andy and Mateo did was to secure a number of grants, get money, get private investments, and build, go from having um, a small farm with you know 40 to 60 head of cattle we were milking um, to having this enormous 3 to $4 million infrastructure project that is a series of caves where they age not only their own cheese, but cheese from around the, the region. And then they have consolidated this labor that all these small farmers were having to do themselves you know graphic design sales shipping you know taking orders and they do it all in this one center with these employees and they have not only created a bunch of jobs but have have also made it much more possible lowered the barrier to entry 
for being um, a cheesemaker in northern Vermont or, you know, really anywhere in, in Vermont or northern New Hampshire. And it's that sort of medium-sized endeavor that I think is really going to save the food system where you, you know, there's certainly... Um, a lot of dignity and a lot of um, you know hard work and a lot of great things about being a small farmer who has your plot of land. But then there's we need all these infrastructure things. We need ways to get things to market, especially in the Northeast where there's such a this this uh, dispersed rural area and then these really concentrated urban centers. And we need to be able to get these products to urban centers at a a price that doesn't make the the product ultimately unaffordable for the farmer to sell or the consumer to buy. And you see that with slaughterhouses. And I think that it, where we are now with, you know, there's all this horrendous job news uh, that came out on Friday, all this stuff about, you know, the economy and the jobless rate being, you know, much higher than, than we had previously thought. Here's a whole opportunity to create middle and working class jobs in getting that cow from the local farmer to Emory so you don't have to call Heritage in New York to do it. You know, creating slaughterhouses, creating trucking services and, you know, cold storage that specifically speaks to this market. That's very, very true. I mean, everyone talks about uh, solar power and I'm like, where is there a solar powered anything? Like, where would I get a job in that? And yet, (laughs) I could hire a guy right now to drive up to... uh, you know, Delaware County or something to help me bring goats back, uh, you know, sure. to, to sell them. So, Christoph, uh, before we go to Larry, um, who's on the line, I mean, tell us about your logistics and your efforts to source good, clean, and fair foods. Um, how do you have to navigate these issues? And you talked about efficiency. Um, so, how do you get that while still staying true to your mission? Well, uh, the first thing is a, a big bicycle. That uh, helps. And so at, at You're the, into cargo bikes, yeah, aren't I, you? Yeah, at, at, at the risk of sounding like some sort of uh, front-to-table cliche, I'm really into my cargo bicycle. Tell us about Is your cargo bike rail first. Um, I have a, a Mundo, actually, uh, um, partly owned by a good friend of mine from uh, Berkeley named Paul Friedman, who also uh, raps under the name uh, Fossil Fool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul, if you're out there, word, word up. Um, awesome. So, and I, and one, so I, I, have, I have several friends in the Bay Area who are, who are uh, including uh, Ross Evans from Extra Cycle, who are big into these cargo bikes. So I have one. And so as long as people can get stuff to the city, I can get stuff from them. And it really, that is actually a, a big difference, honestly. It's like, and that's what you see at the green market when you go there, you know, four days a week is like people with carts, bicycles, things, you know, human powered vehicles getting, you know, it's a lot easier to deal with than uh, a, you know, a gasoline powered vehicle to the restaurant. Um, but that being said, I, I'm still reliant on farmers getting to the city, and that's probably not going to change. Uh, as long as, as long as they can afford to get things to the city, then I can afford to get things from them. Um, so beyond that, uh, logistically, I don't really have, um, you know, on a personal level, Northern Spy. It's like that's really what it's about. Um, well, I love it. Now this is a good segue into Larry because Larry yeah. was thinking about getting more into cargo bikes to transport meats across the yeah, country. Yeah, right, Larry. Across, uh, <laughs> cannib- God bless his legs. Right, right, right. We'll talk about Cannibal Express as a trucking and intermodal delivery service that works with small businesses and farmers to bring their products to market. They specialize in less than load transport, a key service for smaller business entities. And as a smaller business entity, I can say Heritage Foods was about 60,000 pounds of meat every single week. And not a single ounce of that does not at one point or other 
ride on a cannonball truck to any one of like six or seven cities but it could be any city in the country if it needs to be and so larry is very very integral part to our business and it's an honor to have him back hey larry how's it going i'm good patrick how are you good good so um i mean we have a bunch of questions for you but i mean why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you do uh just to provide the context for our questions all right i sure will well we're based out of omaha nebraska which is obviously the central part of the united states and as you said we handle ltl refrigerated and frozen which is less than truckload any manufacturer in the nebraska iowa kansas oklahoma south dakota area who manufactures product and sells to customers that can't sell in truckload volumes uses us as a carrier we service all 48 states We generally take the manufacturing product that they produce on a Thursday and Friday and deliver it the following Monday, Tuesday, anywhere in the country. So, Larry, uh, how what's dip- Oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, well, you were about to oh, say that was actually one of our that questions. That was what I wanted to ask, yeah. 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 What's different from us from other carriers? I think uh, a lot of trucking lines are van carriers, which are non-refrigerated dry vans. Then a few of the the national carriers are refrigerated carriers, and of those few, a very few are LTL refrigerated carriers, and that's who that's what we do for a living. So, what is the biggest challenge about being one of the fewest, uh, one of the few ones left doing both refrigerated and less than load, and also to all forty eight states? Well, logistic wise, a lot of our manufacturers. Uh, need to sell and deliver their freight within a five-day period from the date that they're packaged to the date they deliver. So that's a challenge for not only us, but for the small producer. And we're able to provide that out of the Midwest area. And I understand when you're in the Northeast and the Southeast, there may be difficulties in doing so. And I heard on one of the earlier statements, um, cold storage logistics, that should be a key part of small manufacturers to be able to consolidate freight into a cold storage facility and let them group the products together and hire a carrier like us or someone else to transport it to the, to the end user. So what you're saying is that, um, as Annalise was describing with the Jasper Hill Group, where they've aggregated these farmers and they've, they've sort of centralized the administration of that, so the farmers can do their work, which is farming, and the cheesemakers can do their work, which is cheesemaking, and then there's somebody else who is handling putting those products together in one place so that somebody like you will pick it up and move it along. Now... That's exactly right. Do you see this? Do you see a future in this, or are you guys like the last guy standing? I mean, how many people are willing to do what you do, and what is the difference economically between what you do and what the big trucking systems like Cisco do? Well, what we do is is not consolidate the freight. We deal with cold storages that do so. So if, if you're a small manufacturer and you can go into a cold storage and meet up with two or three other cold storage customers... Then ship that order on Cannonball Express as one order. That's when your freight rates drastically reduce. So if you can ship 5,000 pounds versus 1,000 pounds, right. your freight rate almost cuts in, in half. Wow. So there's, a, there's an economic savings for consolidation of local freight, and local freight can be consolidated in cold storages. Now, I'm not a cold storage unit. I'm a transportation company, right. but a lot of my freight comes from those types of environments where 
the small manufacturer can actually produce, go to a facility of storage, and that's where the savings is in logistics. Do you think that the infrastructure exists for more of that, or have you seen in the time that you've been in this business that infrastructure decrease? Like, is there is there a growing incentive for people to do what you describe, or or has uh, you know broadline distribution just kind of killed that sort of aggregation concept for small businesses? I've seen it actually grow. I've seen carriers where they actually will go out and lease a cold storage unit and consolidate for the many shippers. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people such as Walmarts and such where instead of uh, getting 10 trucks from 10 different manufacturers, they'll ask those manufacturers to get their freight to one distribution center and then Walmart will come and pick up those 10 orders on a Walmart truck and that eliminates them having 10 trucks come to their dock, only one, and it reduces the freight rate because you got 10 shippers riding on the same trailer. Very interesting. I remember, Larry, actually, when we asked him, he was on the show last time, had the economic downturn hurt his company? And he was like, no, it's quite the contrary. There's actually more people now all of a sudden needing less than load transport. We also once talked about, I think you were on twice or, you know, one time or maybe it was the last time talking about the kind of art of the trucker, you know, and, and CB radio culture and all that. I mean, is it a challenge to find reliable truckers or is there kind of like a unstoppable resource of people applying for jobs because I know that it's always the same two or three guys that come to New York City uh, with our stuff so um, what's the challenge from the actual employee standpoint yeah you're, you're right well last time we spoke and until and now to today things have changed in a respect that it's not difficult to find carriers because the demand for trucks is somewhat soft compared to it was say 18 to 24 months ago hmm. Finding good drivers is always a challenge, but finding a driver in general is not at this time because the freight volumes at us at a level where the carriers are almost equal to demand in the way of driver equipment versus freight to haul. So there's a pretty good balance right now. There's not a driver shortage. There's not a truck shortage. And business is pretty consistent as we speak today. How much have fuel prices affected your business over the last uh, 18 months? It's devastated the shipper, and it's affected our business uh, considerably because we, we we and most carriers have a surcharge that's added on based on the national average the government publishes every Monday on fuel nationwide. But we have many, many uh, customers now that pay as much as 25% more based on the high fuel costs. Now, we haven't lost any business due to high fuel, but it certainly has put the... Uh, challenge of the seller to increase their prices to cover for that surcharge so overall it hasn't damaged our volume but it certainly has increased the freight rates nationally based on the fuel surcharges yeah, um, you know, because there's so many, as, as Julie, I mean, almost everyone has said, because so many regional and local trucking uh, um, distribution networks have been kind of obliterated, can you give us just a, a, very interesting to me, a lens into how you actually set on routes? Because you never know where you're going to have to ship. On a, on a Wednesday, and then on a Thursday, you get 500 faxes and emails. How do you, uh, how much time do you allot per stop? How many hours does a driver drive per day? I mean, just give us a little lens in how you plan a 48 state program, uh, you know, every Thursday. 
Well, what we do is uh, exactly what you said. We, we, we transport about two and a half million pounds of LTL freight that we don't even know what it is until Thursday morning. Then we route the trucks Thursday afternoon and we load the trucks Friday. They're multi-stop trucks, generally eight to 12 stops and they deliver Monday, Tuesday, and are generally open, uh, empty Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. The challenges is kind of what you referred to, is with the new rules of driver DOT regulations and the Federal Motor Commuti- uh, Safety Administration bringing in new rules, it's getting much more difficult, and there's going to be pressure on people such as receivers. Uh, our drivers can only drive up to 11 hours in a 21-hour 20, period. And when you go and bump a dock and want to deliver one or two or three pallets, if somebody takes an hour or two hours or three hours to deliver it, that cuts into your work time that's governed by the federal government. Does that count as work time? To the delivery uh, process counts towards that? If a driver's bumped to a dock and in the trailer unloading or sitting waiting, that's called on-duty time, not Mm -hmm. driving time. A driver can be on duty for 14 hours straight, but only drive no more than 11. So if he drives seven and he's um, unloading seven, that equals the 14-hour rule, which makes him stop and must go to the sleeper bunk for 10 hours before he can proceed to work. Wow, how boring. Who needs 10 hours of sleep? Excuse me. But <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> <he wins>. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and, there, and in October, there's legislation that's probably going to reduce it even further. But there's also been talk where they're going to st- uh, start considering fining unload facilities who detain truckers mm-hmm. for an extended length of time mm-hmm. because truck lines can't afford to sit at a dock for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours or more waiting because that's actually cutting into their work time and work time is their earning time they only get paid when they're working not when they're sleeping wow so you if you drive two hours and take 10 hours to unload you've pretty much killed your day because then you have to go to your sleeper berth for 10 hours now there were some government regulations that were pending last time you were a guest and you were telling us like now all of a sudden it was going to be harder for you harder for the trucker and it was all kind of under the auspices of like helping the health of the trucker i think this is the regulation is this the what you're talking about i mean have those rules officially changed already well the rules that i was talking about is pretty much the, the dot rules the csa 2010 system that you are referring to has actually been uh, implemented where at each individual driver now, should he have a roadside stop, his record is accessible to the to the officer who pulls him over. Where before the CSA 2010, it was strictly carrier information. So let me give you just a short example. If a driver was stops with um, lights out on his trailer three times, the carrier would you would see it on his profile, but you wouldn't know that the John Doe had three stops for light violations. Now you do. When that officer pulls him over, they know what his personal driver history is. Wow. Oh, interesting. That so it's very, of, yeah. Kind of invasive. Yeah. I, yeah. I so, won't say it's got a negative effect anymore, but it has kind of weeded out bad apples and made the carriers yeah. much more safety conscious on, on driver and uh, driver stops and inspections. Is there still a CB radio culture like there used to be in, uh, you know, all those Burt Reynolds movies, you know, with the trucks and all that? Like, 
I rode with one of uh, your truckers once, and he said that uh-huh. you used to know 80% of the drivers on the roads, and now he only knows probably 10 to 20%. But, I mean, is there still lifelong truckers, and is there still an active uh, kind of like Willie Nelson, Burt Reynolds culture out there? Well, my general answer to that, Patrick, is no. <laughs> uh, I think with X, with XM and Cirrus radio and satellite radio, the drivers pretty much spend their entire time listening to radio as they as they proceed their way. Hmm. And few few of my drivers, if any, have a CB anymore that they rely on any communication because hmm. it's usually just jabber and and uh, and consultation. People just talking about anything and everything. And it really be, has become a nature where they'd rather listen to their satellite radios than listen to unknown jabber on the road. So even though they're telling really them where the radar, environment anymore. they're not telling where, yeah, the, we don't, where the radar yeah. traps are and stuff like that. Like yeah. that doesn't get communicated anymore. Those are kind of gone by the wayside. The only thing I would probably uh, say the CB radio they might ask if scales are open or if there's construction ahead hmm. or any traffic backups. You might use it for that, but generally speaking, uh, the old Smokey and the Bear <laughs> radar trap ahead kind of thing is probably pretty much gone with the 78 Pontiac Firebird key top. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm totally going to cancel that for my Both Netflix now, uh, my Netflix uh, queue. Now, so, Larry, d- just to kind of wrap up a little bit with you, what are the biggest challenges that you face in your less-than-load industry as opposed to some of the other big broadline distributors? Do you Is it fuel? Is it is it uh, the lack of aggregation? Is it, you know, what makes your job the hardest? Um, that, that's a very good question. In the last 18 months, it's, everything's been pretty consistent, pretty flat, and haven't had a lot of challenges. I do see the difficulty in my business right now where uh, the federal government's insisted on manufacturing changes in tractors, and it's increased the crop cost to purchase new equipment. Hmm. So I have, in my total fleet, my drivers, when they upgrade, they upgrade from maybe an 01 unit to a, maybe a 2007, 2008. Hmm. They're not willing to buy the 2012 units because they're not as fuel efficient and their cost is very high compared to uh, values of a 2008 tractor. So we're just not buying new equipment because they're not efficient and they're so highly priced that I see coming down the road in two to three years, we're going to be pushed to buy that new truck that really isn't as efficient and not as economical and it's going to be a very much more difficult situation than it is today. And the government is pushing those purchases, and they are pushing those purchases because the motor companies are demanding that you buy well, the, them? The, government, the government's pushing uh, engine the changes. <laughs> well, it, it's more in like uh, EPA, uh, diesel emissions, uh, things like that, the green environment. They're pushing for the manufacturers to change how the motors are produced right. and how they put out emissions, and that's increasing the cost of the tractor. And I'll just say an average tractor right now, if I was to go out and buy, it would be about $130,000, $140,000. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it gets probably one or one and a half miles per gallon less than my old ones and old fours and old five units that I run. And we probably paid eighty thousand for those old four. So my cost for a new tractor is almost seventy thousand more than it was four or five years ago. And they get less fuel economy. So I'm paying three seventy, three ninety a gallon for fuel and it's getting 
you know, 5.3 miles per gallon instead of 5.9 or 6.3. So my cost for fuel has gone up. My my emission, my uh, fuel economy has gone down 20%. My fuel cost has increased by about 70%. Amazing. So, Can you... Yeah, um, we just... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Larry. We, you go, Larry. We just are hesitant to buy new trucks. So we're buying used trucks, and most carriers are. And it's making the used truck demand is causing the supply to be able to buy used trucks to be very, very low. Wow. Well, can you predict, Larry, in um, in 100 years, so what would that be, 2,000, uh, 3,000, 3, no, 2,000, what would that be? 100 in 100 years, years, it'll be 2,111. 111. What will your situation, your position in, uh, you know, what will your position be like? Can you predict the trucking industry in literally 100 years? Like, what... Can you even think that far ahead? And then, and, and do you think there'll be no less than load carriers then, or what do you think the state of the trucking business will be? I don't think there's any uh, risk of less than truckload carriers going away because, uh, generally speaking, uh, people like me haul a hundred percent of the freight for small, the medium-sized manufacturers. Mm-hmm. They're always going to need to have a less than truckload carrier because they don't have the size to sell truckloads to to customers yeah um so i don't think it's it's a dinosaur going away i i think the economy is such i think you're going to see more regional purchasing i think people in the northeast are going to buy more products that within a 500 mile radius than buying freight that's california montana or or uh colorado and are you going to have the uh, challenge to go both ways uh, you know, to uh, also pick up from New York and bring back to other places? I mean, is that something you're trying to tackle, or are you mostly middle to the outs? Well, because I'm centrally located in Omaha, I'm able, I'm able to do that, Patrick, as long as that destination of the freight is is west of Omaha. And I just I just say, if you manufacture it in New Jersey and you want to go to California, I can certainly do that and do that today. Mm-hmm. If it's manufactured in New Jersey and you want it to go to Florida... There wouldn't be any economic sense to doing so because I would have to transport it to Omaha to send it through my facility and go back to Florida, which right. would be many miles out of route. So I can, I can, yeah, I can perform LTL for anybody in in the country, but if it doesn't pass through Omaha, it's not economically feasible. Well, thank wanna, God, Omaha's. In I want to go back for just a second to the fuel issue because um, I've been following the ethanol. Um, you know, controversy and the fact that ethanol subsidies look like they're on the chopping block in Congress and stuff. And to talk about the fuel efficiencies that you were discussing earlier in, in newer model trucks, are those related in any way to the increased use of ethanol or uh, biofuels in um, regulation gasoline? Not at this time. Biofuels have, have really had little impact yet on, on the transportation industry and the commercial motor vehicle. I have some drivers that use it. I don't see any advantages to them using it right now. So there's really not a high percentage of usage in the fleets that I run. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see really it having any general impact on the the fuel costs and such or reducing the fuel costs. I just think they're the, the engine manufacturers are stressed to make motors that produce less 
emissions, and that generally will mean less miles per gallon and less efficiency. Well, Larry, it's almost humbling to have you on because you really are really in it Thank almost you, more than, than, yeah, I mean, I really mean it. It's humbling, and you remain one of our most fascinating and informative guests because as we're all here with our little regional local stories you're actually doing it day in and day out to the tune of two three million pounds a week so thank you so much and we look forward to having you uh on soon again and i'll be sending you my facts next uh wednesday morning (laughs) anytime thanks larry all right great talking to you thank you you take care you bet bye all well, wow, what an interesting uh, guy. It gives you a whole new perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. It's I mean, amazing, yeah. He really is. He has this... It's, so it's, well-spoken, too. And I a mean. completely different kind of uh, perspective on how things move around yeah. and what, what the real factors are at work. Like, I was really hoping he would say something horrible about ethanol, but damn! <laughs> no, he even said it. He, I like what he said. He, he, he didn't even acknowledge it. Yeah, I mean, the worst right. insult It's a non-factor is, for him. Yeah, it, which is so interesting since they have promoted it so heavily as something that's going to change. There was a big article our... in the Times that oh, said really? that, uh, yeah, in the business section being like, keep on all everyone's questioning Oh, it. I did see and that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this is, what a fascinating show. I mean, we have nine more minutes, so we're going to just, you know, kind of get into general concluding mo- conclusion modes and websites and final thoughts and all that. So, uh, Julie, I mean, we'll start with you since you've traveled from the furthest away. <laughs> um, tell us about... Um, What's you know next what students you guys? Uh, can look forward to if they apply to Emory University. Is there a website? You know, uh, final thoughts. Yeah, um, you can learn about our sustainable food initiatives at emory.edu and click on sustainability. Click on Emory Dining, and um, yeah, I just want to say that. Um, Patrick, you're one of my heroes. And what? Yes, have been for a very long time. I, um, you know, from the moment you talked me into becoming a slow food <laughs> chapter founder, um, I've had uh, an incredible admiration and respect for you, the work you've done, and um, it's just a real pleasure to be here. And yeah, you are a nonstop force. I mean, when you put in that order for a pallet of turkeys to Emory University, we were like, what? And I think we're going to do, you know, Heritage Feast number three. This really? Is it? Okay, oh, that's, that's my awesome. next question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. But, uh, well, Annalise, tell us uh, how people can subscribe to your, um, to your articles each week, to your emails. Um, we're online at brooklynbase.net, um, and there's a... It's, the first thing you see pretty much there's a field that that allows you to sign up. We come out three days a week. Tuesdays and Thursdays are, you know, sort of just... Feature stories, things that are happening in Brooklyn, Brooklynites who are writing books, playing in bands, doing interesting, weird, fun, delightful stuff. Um, And then Wednesday we have uh, an email that comes out that's called the tip sheet that's a guide to... You know all of the events and entertainment that we've you know sort of carefully curated to think are the the best most interesting events going on in Brooklyn mm-hmm. that week. Um, what's coming up? What's coming up? Um, well, one thing that's coming up, and I will have to double check the date for on this. I believe it's July twenty seventh. Um, the Greenhorns movie is playing at oh, the fabulous. Bell House. Severin von Fleming. And it's, it's funny, the Greenhorns, my, my business partner, Nicole Davis, who's the founder of Brooklyn Based, we actually met at a party that was fundraising for and running the, the first cut trailer of the Greenhorns, like, you know, more than three years ago now. Mm. And, uh, you know, we ended up, like, 
chatting in the kitchen and you know I started working for her and then we became business partners so the Greenhorns are sort of um, tied up in our in our history at Brooklyn based in a, in a sort of quirky very Brooklyn kind of way um, then there's the Brooklyn uh, there's the uh, block party right here right isn't there a Bushwick Roberta's kind yeah. of block party right here yes that's also an event that um, you know people should really look out for and this is uh, another thing we wrote about in Brooklyn based this week in a sort of advertorial mode um, the folks from the Meat Hook, my husband Tom and uh, Brent, his business partner. Who's and out? Then, I just saw it yesterday at Rippers. Yes, out at Rippers. Um, you know, se- selling dogs and, uh, and and burgers. And then the the chef from Roebling Tea Room, which is a restaurant I, I really love, Dennis Spina, and our friend Millicent Soros. We're doing an event in Maine, um, August 9th through 13th, called the Main Event. That's sort of a weird foodie summer camp, just chaotic fun time are you um, allowed to promote main events in brooklyn I make an, well you know it's like brooklyn goes to maine okay, um which is a very we <laughs> when, <laughs> last summer when we were up there you know i was driving around a minivan with new jersey plates with this like is minivan full of chef butchered pirates in this like idyllic main town and we, we really stood mm, out i can um, imagine yeah, I got honked at a lot. Apparently, I now drive like a New Yorker. Good. <laughs> yeah. So you've, um, you've given up your Northeast Kingdom ways. I ha- well, your true New bit, England ways. She yeah. drives well. New Yorkers are good drivers. I think they're good drivers, yeah. too, but everyone around you has to be agreeing to have the same New York driving rules. I just think they have to stay on their line. They have to stick to their line, <laughs> let the New York drivers move around. They actually don't even slow people down. They just come in and out. They move faster and better. I, I would think. so much rather drive in New York than Boston. When was um, the last time you saw two cabs get into a head-on collision? They never get in an accident. It's always like a cab and a then cab some dude accident. from New Jersey who's like, wah! <laughs> That's true. Patrick but anyhow, speaking up for the cabbies. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, they, uh, they're, they're not bad drivers. Just some people don't know how to handle them. The main so, event will be really fun. We're going to kill chickens. We do that as like a demo every year, and people love it and are freaked out by it, and it's really yeah, Where are these chickens from? They're grown up in Maine, and it, the it, the town that Saltwater Farm is in is called Lincolnville. Can we visit that farm? Yeah. yeah. Do they have do a they name, these nuts? chickens? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think the hazelnuts are local and in Maine. I think they're blueberry cheese. fed. Did he have friends, ah. the chicken that you are going to And you right. intimately experience their death. So I'm going to go check out this farm. Brooklyn-based... Brooklyn-based.net. Fantastic. Well, Christoph, tell us uh, what's on the menu. What's happening with Northern Spy? Uh, Well, we just uh, just shut down for four days and uh, uh, did a little renovation in the kitchen. Put in some equipment. Had to fix up our hood exhaust. uh, Put a fresh coat of paint on everything so the place looks brand spanking new, sort of. And it was very nice to sort of give everybody a break and to to get back into sort of opening mode. Uh, Potentially uh, crazy, but, you know, it's kind of, it's how we roll. So we're back open uh, as of uh, Friday. And And what can people eat there? I mean, yeah, I was uh, going to say, I wanted to bring this up before, but you have an awesome menu. Like, I checked it out. And, yeah, well, Nathan's, and despite Nathan's a pretty your, sophisticated your pizzaiolo yeah. uh, experience, well, you don't menu, have you know? any pizza yeah. on it. Nathan is, uh, you know, really nice stuff. he's, um, 
he was he cut his teeth on that sort of uh, high end California French mm-hmm. uh, San Francisco fine dining scene. Ron Siegel from Massa's uh, Jardinier, One Market, Gemini, uh, Myth um, is a big one for him. So it's you know it's like it's kind of fine dining techniques put into the sort of the American Brooklyn based uh, farm to table movement. Um, mm. So well, everything on the menu I wanted to eat. So yeah, we got lots of nice, always a good, nice stuff rolling out. Especially the, the picnic shoulder and the yeah. brisket. And then one new thing yeah. that we're doing starting uh, tomorrow morning um, at 10 o'clock is that we're sort of hybridizing our lunch and brunch menus. So brunch is so popular that some of our favorite savory items like Nathan's corned beef hash, which is probably honestly one of the better corned beef hashes, if not the best in the city, because he uses heritage brisket and he cuts big these big fat chunks of uh, house cured brisket uh, with with potatoes that are poached in olive oil and poached eggs very nice Um, so we're gonna be doing that five days a week and then the regular brunch menu on weekends so you know east village kids you know you can roll out of bed get yourself a cbh and uh do you have a website (laughs) northernspyfoodco.com you can follow us on twitter northernspyfood uh all those things so we're very active on these social medias and the interwebs katie once again a great show. Thank you, Patrick. You look great, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You look pretty good, too. You painted your hallway today, didn't uh, you? I painted it yesterday, yeah. Good Two job. coats of orange paint looked good, yeah. We were engineered and produced by our indelible, what's the word I'm like? Indomitable. Our ineffable. 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 Yes. Inimitable Jack Inslee. Jack Inslee. And, um, Sponsored by Hearst Ranch today. And Thank you very much. And dedicated to Ray Dieter and his family. Absolutely. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. with Block Party. It's a party in the street all day long.